I hear you're getting some very interesting YouTube advertising directed at you. Yeah, the algorithms really pegged me for a crank. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how this happened, probably in my research for this podcast, but I get a lot of Dennis Prager propaganda telling me all about how capitalism and inequality are actually really cool and good. Um, <laughs> and I also am now getting a bunch of anti-Chinese Communist Party TM propaganda from a, a organization called the Epoch Times or the Epic Times, depending on how you pronounce that word. And it was just like really obnoxious. It was like this, you know, dweeby dude who is like correcting his like wife uh, in the kitchen over, you know, <laughs> claims that, that China is blaming the U.S. for the, uh, the coronavirus. And he like pulls out a newspaper and is, you know, is like, oh, actually, uh, it, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has been covering this up for six weeks and, you know, fired the uh, the or jailed or whatever the the whistleblowing uh, doctor and blah, blah, blah. And making it all about how the Chinese Communist Party, which they keep referring to as, you know, uh, the, the real ne'er-do-well in all of this has basically unleashed this uh, pathogen on the world, like seemingly on purpose. Do you know the truth behind this global outbreak? This is a timeline of how the Chinese Communist Party covered up what was happening inside of China for six full weeks. How they punished the brave whistleblowers who dared to report the truth. How they used the World Health Organization. How they destroyed laboratory evidence. How they sat on the genome for a full week before sharing it with the international community and how they continue to lie to the entire world until they couldn't cover it up anymore, and now we're all in this critical situation together. To this very day, the communist government is still lying, and their false narratives are being echoed by the world's media, which is why you need a source of news that you can trust. Um, and I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, why am I getting... And then it, it kept happening more and more and more. Like, I, I was getting it throughout the week just listening to, like you know, fucking lo-fi hip-hop playlists. Like, every, you know, 20 minutes, I'd get some type of propaganda trying to get me to hate China and want, like, you know, a fucking global conflagration over, um, I guess, their incredibly effective uh, <laughs> pandemic response. I, I don't know. Like, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's totally absurd that anybody looking at the material facts as it relates to this would blame... China for our completely abysmal, um, you know, response to this pandemic. Like we knew about this for months, like maybe three, four months and basically just like, fuck the dog. We didn't yeah. do anything. We yeah, didn't we like, buy, we didn't buy PPE. We didn't, you know, try and figure out uh, how to do contract tracing early. And this was something that I don't know about everybody else, but like I knew about this back in December, like early December. Uh, because we were uh, planning for uh, manufacturing, uh, you know, we, we, we work with uh, manufacturers in both uh, Taiwan and Japan and China. And a lot of our um, uh, supply chains all come from China because that's pretty much where all the semiconductor um, components are manufactured and distributed. And we couldn't get anything for a couple months because, you know, China had basically shut down for two reasons. One, the uh, Lunar uh, New Year, which is like a annual celebration that everybody in manufacturing has to like plan around because it shuts down for like two or three weeks. Um, but then it didn't reopen uh, because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, so we knew like way back 
that this was going to be like a really big deal. Um, and like, <laughs> it wasn't a secret. Like, it was on the news. It was everything. And you know, like, I, I don't know if you guys have seen any of the compilation videos about how Trump handled this, but calling it, you know, a a hoax, uh, saying it's just going to miraculously disappear, uh, talking about how it will never really uh, reach our borders, how we have zero cases, blah, 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 blah. And uh, yeah, now it seems like there's these organizations that are trying to make it seem like uh, the United States is victimized by uh, the Chinese Communist Party. And so I did a little bit of research into this, looking into Wikipedia for the Epic Times. And it turns out that um, the Epic Times is a very anti-communist political rag that is put out by a uh, religious organization, uh, the Falun Gong practitioners, uh, who I guess basically were kicked out of China. Uh, there's some type of Taoist um, religion. Some people call them a cult. The Epoch Times was started by Chinese Americans living in the United States who themselves had seen how the Chinese Communist Party manipulates information and uses disinformation to control narratives. While we are now a global media, we were originally started because our founders saw a need for an honest media for those living under communist repression and censorship in China. But this came at a big cost. Nearly all of our staff in China were arrested. And because we speak honestly about the Chinese Communist Party, we are blacklisted from China. And that this organization has this um, anti-Chinese Communist Party uh, propaganda um, newspaper that they're pushing really hard. And I'm trying to like figure out who is behind the funding of all this, because like I cannot imagine that they're making a profit on this paper. Like with the amount of uh, advertising that they're doing on YouTube, I don't imagine they have enough paid subscribers to like offset that. It seems to be primarily like a, a agitprop activity for the purpose of like convincing Americans that like the CCP needs to be, you know, destroyed by, I guess, H-bombs, which all uh, military strategists uh, predict would be the inevitable outcome after a land and air and sea stalemate if we ever got into a hot conflict with China. So anyway, watch out for that, uh, y'all. And uh, remember to uh, check the sources and see what, what, what they're all about. I'm curious to know what the fuck you watched on YouTube that's uh, earned you this algorithmic hell that you've been put in. It, um, it's probably what it was probably just watching uh, Alex Jones videos for yeah. research for the show, trying to get my my Alex Jones impersonation down. You know, <laughs> got my brain pills because <laughs> now because now I get uh, brain pill ads too. like I get all the crank shit. I was on, I, I, I knew about the, the brain pill stuff like way back in like 2007 or something. I, I had the paracetam going on and stuff like that. Like me and my roommate would play with that stuff all the time. And like, you're like, yeah, it kind of feels like Adderall, but it's like uh, kind of crappy. And <laughs> Wait, you actually took it? Yeah, I've taken paracetam a lot. I Dude, used to that... it all the time when I was in grad school. Yeah. That really explains how powerful your brains are. Right, yeah. It permanently rewired my brain to uh, look deeply into the third eye of uh, the American um, ruling elite and stare back. It just gives you a slight, slightly anxious clarity. Like, yeah. that's all it really... And even that may be more placebo than actual effect of it. And uh, it, you, you uh, get used to it really fast. Like, you can only take it, like, 
three or four times before like the the uh effects just really decline i used to i can't remember what i called it but i used to make this um paracetam cocktail with like vodka and lemonade and paracetam and red bull and that's how i got through my second year of grad school basically was on vodka and paracetam and red bull we were just way ahead of the curve uh with you <laughs> say he hasn't even thought of the idea of mixing it with alcohol to become a, a super saiyan uh mind freak you know, I, I think you guys uh, should maybe potentially do a pivot into rebranding some some brain pills, and we could, uh, you know, like I know you're doing really good with the narration, and you're no, I'm not, producing though. some no, really. No, I'm not. Don't <laughs> let people think that I am because I'm not. I am totally well, flat on my ass. No gigs. No. It like what's happened is since COVID broke out, the number of narrators on the audiobook creation exchange, which is where I get most of my work from has completely ballooned because now all of these people who are home all day looking for some kind of gig have now tried to enter the narration field and it's completely nightmarish to try to get new gigs now. So I actually just got my um, uh, first thing this morning, got another rejection (laughs) that was like a gig I really thought I was going to get. So please don't let our audience think that I'm rolling in narrator money. I am not. Patreon.com slash Ironweeds. Thank you so much, folks. Appreciate it. Love you guys. Yeah. Well, I I didn't mean in terms of financial success, but rather just how high, obviously high quality, the work that you're putting out in there. Oh, thanks, um, Chris. But yeah, if you even put out half as high quality um, advertisements for, I don't know, like some type of custom caffeine pill that we could bake up in my kitchen, you know, COVID kitchen. And uh, I don't know. I, th- I, I think that that it seems to work for Alex. I think it could work for us. We can make like like gummies that are like mango flavored and have caffeine and paracetam in them. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys ever do Kratom? No. So I know Kratom was like legal for a while and um, uh, Street Fight Radio uh, was like really singing its praises. And actually, I think for a period of time was, was selling it from their website. Um, but I've never done Kratom. I don't, it, I don't know how you do it. Do you like eat it? I don't know. Apparently, it's some type of like uh, herbal um, enhancement <laughs> for your brain. Uh, you, 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 you boof it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I read about Kratom on um, Arrowhead once, but no, I have not partaken of it myself, unfortunately. We sh- we're going to have to do a Kratom episode where we somehow source Kratom and just do a bunch of it and pod and see uh, how uh, fucked up we get. <laughs> so, uh, listeners, if you have a Kratom Connect, uh, hit us up at ironweedspod at gmail.com. If you buy it for us, we'll uh, Twitch stream our our uh, taking of Kratom. <laughs> so there's been like some pretty good like media studies work. And I obviously all the names of the people who have done it escape me right now because that's not very good with um, remembering details of things. We haven't but, had paracetam in a long time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my brain pills are uh, my supply has run dry. But there's been a lot of really good research on algorithm, uh, specifically the YouTube algorithm and how YouTube has apparently tried to correct for this re- in recent uh, months. But 
there has been this really insidious algorithmic effect of like watching one conspiracy theory video and then that's all the algorithm feeds you and you'll just you'll see like recommendation after recommendation of this um conspiracy theory hole and it's not just conspiracy theories either there was this one expose done by a fairly problematic youtuber i don't remember his name um but it was a good it was a good video and it was about um this really horrific kind of i don't even want to call it underground because it's so Above ground. Above ground, but um, videos of, like, little girls doing, like, gymnastics and stuff. So videos of them, and you watch, like, one video of children doing gymnastics, and now you get all of these recommendations, and these pedophiles will go through and um, do timestamp links. So in YouTube, you can, like, link to a timestamp. You can put it in the comments. You can do whatever. Um, and they would like link to timestamps from the videos where like you get to see the six year old girls like crotch. What? Yeah. Um, and so you, it's very easy to fall into these like fucking bizarre, uh, I guess you might say like subculture or, you know, just like these weird kind of pedophile ring. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, you know, or conspiracy theory, whatever it happens to be. But yeah, it's really wild the extent to which the algorithm like rules our life. I was just telling David, uh, maybe yesterday, that like for some reason Instagram is the platform that is best, uh, that is most effective at advertising to me because like every ad for anything I see on Instagram, I want it. It's like all pitch gadgets <laughs> and like, um, like cool jewelry, basically. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It's totally wild how how much the algorithm shapes our you know what we see and what what kind of like knowledge we consume. Oh, it's it's incredible. I get these like little thumb piano uh, things that sound really cool um, advertised to me. I get these um, uh, like there's this like little steel drum thing that that uh is all like in a uh harmonic key where you can like play and like all these like little instrument like fucking things so instagram really has this algorithm down to the kind of shit that like i actually haven't bought a lot on instagram but i'm constantly just like oh shit that's really cool i have tech lust if, yeah. if i ever find something that i like on uh, on instagram uh ads i will usually go find Oh, I do a Google search for it because I don't want to give them the satisfaction of, of like <laughs> them knowing that they got me. So I, yeah. I, I always like try to like you know do parallel reconstruction of, of, the, of the thing. They, like, go find it somewhere else. He's like, I, I'm just like, no, you did not figure me out. You did not, Lucy. Get out of those Cheez-Its. Hey, these are you human can... food. You already got fed this morning. This is sort of relevant to our last episode when we talked about, you know, the shock doctrine relative to COVID. And who's to say, like, how much any of this is intentional or actually just, um, you know, happens to or like the result of unfortunate circumstances with budgets. But the city of Troy is getting completely dismantling its entire reading program due to a budgetary deficit for the local school system. Yeah, so there is um, a hole of a little under $3 million that they, uh, they're projecting into the next school year, uh, 2.93 to be exact. And um, there is, uh, so like last Tuesday night, there was an um, education board meeting where they 
announced this and the idea that they had for making up that budget gap is firing every reading teacher uh in the in the um school district and now that was announced by a uh school superintendent that makes two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars a year uh damn so, so that's cool um critical yeah yeah uh and i mean this is going to happen all over the country right because you get this like one two punch of people losing their jobs so they either leave their house, they have to leave their house or their, you know, like, uh, or property values go down. Uh, this, and a lot of it is also um, the state, uh, the state in New York's case, like cutting its own education budget. So all of the uh, intergovernmental transfers that would come from the state to local governments is going away. And that's where that budget shortfall shows up is from like both uh, local revenues and state money transfers like shrinking at the same time uh and the way that they make up for it is to fire people you know and that's uh and that's what we're gonna see we're gonna see us all over the place i mean it's happened in, in albany too they've just hired they've fired just a shit ton of teachers and a lot of these teachers have been in have been teachers for 20 years you know it's like so how do you even move forward with a new career when you've been a public school teacher for 20 years you're presumably you know a little bit older. It's harder for older folks to find jobs in new professions for all of the reasons you would imagine. And on top of that, you know, Troy's, I think it's, I think I saw something like 70% of students in the Troy public school system read below their grade level. And reading is like, I think the most critical thing that we teach, especially younger kids, especially like elementary and middle school kids, it's one of the most critical tools that we give them in terms of being an informed citizen, in terms of being able to like have, you know, any kind of job prospect. Like if you can't read and write well, even if we make a massive turn to like STEM uh, in our economy, like it, it's, you can't succeed in even STEM fields without being able to read. It's, it's absolutely oh, yes. monstrous. <laughs> That yeah, I can, cutting I can say what that. I think is the most, if like the most important pedagogy that young people can be um, can be trained in. So uh, yeah, STEM economy, whether it's coding or you know doing some type of biopharmaceutical or whatever, um, it has a critical foundation in basic reading skills and uh, technical um, uh, comp reading comprehension. Um, and so the idea that we can somehow sacrifice reading teachers um, is absurd. My mom's actually a reading teacher. She's a special ed teacher that teaches kids who have dyslexia how to um, uh, read. She follows a program called uh, Wilson um, and actually had to get like two masters and uh, a whole bunch of special uh, training to be able to do this. So some of the reading teachers out there are actually like the most qualified and educated um, like educational professionals um, in our public schooling system. My mom's been a public school special ed reading teacher for, for a really long time. Um, and like, it's absolutely critical. We got like, if we're going to make any uh, budget shortcuts anywhere, I think we can get rid of uh, a $275,000 administrator uh, more than we can some basic reading um, uh, educators that are helping the people who, you know, are the quote unquote children left behind uh, after the Obama era, uh, no child left behind uh, uh, process, you know? Yeah, and uh, another, well, we're thinking of other places to cut. Uh, um, three weeks ago, I think it was. Um... Two weeks ago, uh, Troy rehired their basketball teacher or their basketball oh. coach. 
so, critical. Yeah, yeah, critical. And also, like, we're going to be doing a lot of basketball games uh, oh, yeah. soon, right? You know, so, like, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just the priorities are just all sorts of fucked up. And if you didn't listen to last week's episode or you're not familiar with the idea of a shock doctrine uh, in general, you know, like the the idea is that you take advantage of a of a crisis to reform uh, some sort of program or, or or institution in a way that you would like. Right. So in this case, you know, you, uh, there's a budget shortfall. So you fire everyone and rehire everyone as like an untenured uh, charter school employee. You know, like that's the kind of stuff that we're going to we're going to be seeing. And New York is like such a, a a prize for these sorts of um, like charter school companies, you know, like the ones that like Betsy DeVos used to run. You know, like, I, I think that's right. You know, like, uh, Betsy DeVos, very interested in charter schools. You know, like that's, uh, you know, like New York has such a huge education system that is also heavily unionized. And the union is pretty powerful or at least, you know, strong. Um, you know, so to be able to to break the back of um, nice at New York State Union of Teachers would be a pretty big get, and uh, I, I would not ex- I, I wholly expect this to be the opportunity that um, the powers that be uh, use to to break it up. So we'll include in the show notes a link to a petition that uh, local uh, city residents have put together to try and you know, raise outrage around this. I think last time I checked, there were like a couple hundred uh, signatories. When this all started happening, I thought that uh, this would be actually a, an opportunity for our city to save money in the sense that it wouldn't be um, paying, quote unquote, non-essential workers. Um, but it sucks that the state budget has been affected so much by this COVID response that we can no longer follow through on all the obligations that we have to our fellow citizens. Like, I know my, my uh, school taxes haven't gone down in this. So I thought there was like a higher percentage of the funding of our local schools by like actual, you know, area resident taxpayers. Yeah, I was just talking about that with a friend the other day. I think um, one thing that's ruffled my feathers about this whole, you know, and this is obviously like the anecdote is not data, but like we just paid our state taxes last year. We paid a shit ton in state taxes. We paid a lot in property taxes. We paid a lot in school taxes. And it's just absolutely maddening to try to wrap your head around the fact that like we don't make very much money and we paid a shit ton in taxes. So why are we losing reading teachers? And a lot of it, I think, has to do with just the bloat of administrative positions in um, in school budgets and, you know, the fact that uh, like the cities are like the city budget is so fucking mismanaged and. I don't know. I don't know how to. Um, it's making me feel very Kropotkiny lately. Like, why the fuck am I paying all this money in taxes for the state to cut what I think should be some of the most essential services that it provides? It's absolutely. Uh, it's mind-boggling and it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I think part of the also the the uh, the money. Um, the reason that there is less money coming from the state is because uh, they've moved that money to coronavirus relief efforts. Uh, which is not to say that um, that those are all like good uses of money, right? Because like, or or that like things couldn't have been grabbed from somewhere else other than education, because you have like uh, construction workers like working on capital projects, both for the state and privately, that um, don't need to be working right now. To be honest, you know, and like uh, we we're having this um, uh, conversation. Uh, in our union at UUP 
uh, for, you know, the SUNY system where, you know, we're thinking about like, you know, what needs to be um, cut and what to expect. And one thing that the university has already publicly stated is that like most of their capital improvement projects, which, you know, like, which just means, you know, like rehabbing businesses, uh, rehabbing buildings and building new ones, like that's untouched. You know, like that, that will continue on. And you think about why, right? It was like one, you know, like a lot of stuff is crumbling. So you need to uh, build those things if anything is going to work. But also, um, you know, the, this is the, the structure of capital, right? Is that if you don't keep building those things, then the debt will actually get bigger and you won't uh, and you'll incur even more costs. And because the whole thing is built on stuff moving, right? It's the moving of capital and the cycling of money into commodities into money again. And so if you ever stop that cycle, uh, it just starts hemorrhaging money because everything needs to be constantly bought and sold. You can't, you can't save, you can't build a nest egg as a society because that's not how anything is built. Everything is built for the purpose of constantly reinvesting and spending uh, money. Everything has to move, you know? And, and so if, if you have something like a pandemic, where it is absolutely necessary that people stop moving in order to save lives, everything falls apart. And also keeping, you know, the, the services going doesn't help capital accumulate. Like, you know, not directly, at least, you know, like, yeah, uh, educating your populace so that they can read will eventually pay dividends for capital accumulation. But um, we could, you know, get, um, I don't know, pick your tech billionaire, uh, maybe Bill Gates to jump in and like, you know, make for some firm a ton of like iPads that, you know, force kids to watch educational videos and then like zap them when they don't fucking pay attention or some shit like that. <laughs> that's some capital accumulation, you know, somebody can make some profit on yeah. that. Yeah. And like that, that's um, an important thing to note is that uh, part of capital accumulation is finding new, new places to accumulate, right. Which often means uh, destroying old things so you can rebuild new ones. Right. So if capitalism finds itself like hemmed in on all sides, it needs to destroy something and then rebuild it, right? So in this case, it's the education system in New York, where uh, everything is slowed down and stopped. So what can we do to create more uh, um, profits? Is well, we can just destroy the education system, and then and now look, now there's a thing to build, and we can rebuild it in the image of the Gates Foundation, right? Where uh, service employees that make a third of what they used to make, because if money goes to labor and social reproduction, then that does, that's money that is not going into uh, capital and profits. So uh, that's where you want to really strike. And so you, you remove all of this like skilled labor and you replace it with uh, people that are easily replaceable, uh, sort of service workers that you know, like tend to your kid while the iPad teaches them. Yeah, like, and this is an extension of a process that's been going on uh, with the high stakes uh, testing in the Obama era, No Child Left Behind, and, uh, you know, the, the Bush era before him. Uh, and now Trump, you know, has got Betsy DeVos doing all of her bullshit privatization of public education things. But the whole thing about Pearson and the high stakes testing was trying to figure out, okay, how can we get profit into this education system? that uh, we've decided that we, we should have. And it was about having this organization called Pearson 
um, able to basically create a monopoly over the educational materials and uh, qualification testing of all of public education. And so suddenly throughout the entire nation, um, instead of learning what our society deemed critical for the economy or for, you know, uh, having a good social life or any, you know, subjective reason that made sense, it was all to teach to the test. And so everything became uh, super high stakes, like the, uh, the, the, the salaries or the ability for a public school department to even exist was based on whether or not these kids could pass this arbitrary test, you know, and this uh, was all done by creating the myth that our schools were failing. And it was because, you know, we had, you know, let educators, you know, um, you know be independent teachers. for too long. Yeah, yeah. We just, you know, we weren't, we weren't holding them to their feet to the fire. We weren't, you know, really, ever. yeah, we weren't really grilling them and, and making sure that they perform and that they, they perform with excellence and efficiency and that they get the right results. We're going to get those results by having the standardized test and, the, you know, don't don't look at the wizard behind the curtain. Don't look at the fact that there are like these private capitalists that are basically vacuuming up huge amounts of both teaching time and uh, educational expenses uh, for private profit um, out of our public education system. Don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to the fact that we have underperforming schools which means that these lazy motherfucking teachers that just are constantly striking and agitating for better uh, conditions and books and uh, uh, physical uh, uh, environment for their students. Yeah, fuck those guys. They're a bunch of lazy good-for-nothings. And really, they're not even that good at their job. And the reason why we know they're not that good at their job is that we instituted this private for-profit testing system that says so. <laughs> yeah. And the idea that uh, performance should be a factor in um, uh, funding, i.e., if your school doesn't perform, it gets its funding cut, um, both, you know, makes no logical sense on its surface, as well as, um, you know, is, is quite the opposite of what you would imagine. So, like, if these tests were, uh, you know, for the public benefit, they would be done by the public sector in a non-profiteering mechanism, and we would figure out where our education system wasn't uh, up to par, and we would invest in that education system such that it improved. Uh, but none of that's happening, and uh, lots and lots of private corporations are getting rich off of destroying our public education. Yeah, that, that idea that schools that uh, quote-unquote underperform should get less money than schools that perform well, it's it's like, you know, well, if my roof is just going to leak on me, then I'm not going to put any money into fixing that. Like, I'm only going to... broke-ass roof. Yeah, I'm only going to put money into a roof that, that works and doesn't let rain into... You know, it's totally... Um, it, it's it's very backwards logic. You don't, yeah, yeah, you don't want to reward it, bad behavior. Right, yeah. And if, and if you want to, like, put this into an, an even, like deeper longer harder context no uh, if you want if you want to put this into like a like a um if you want to put this into a longer context of of the automation of work you know you can go back all the way back to like the automation of factories uh for um you know like car production or something like that where um you'll see that that production actually goes down uh in the short term, where like the the robot or whatever you use to replace human labor is not as good as the the uh, human version, 
we can also see that even with drone strikes, right? If you, if you want to say that the, you know, the optimal condition is killing the, the right person, <laughs> you know, the drone, stri- drone strikes did not do a very good job of that, right? Um, and every single time that you do uh, this sort of automation, it's expected that, the, uh, that it will not work in the short term, because the idea is not to create a better product through automation, it's to create a cheaper process that has less power uh, it, within it, right? And that, um, that less money goes to labor and more of it returns to capital. Uh, and so it, when, 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 I think, you know, like Bill Gates gets to have his way with the New York education system, we're going to find that it sucks. Of course it's going to suck. Because instead of like a living, breathing human, uh, like understanding the complex life of like 15, 20 children... Like, you're just going to have, uh, you know, someone with almost no training doing their best, but they're going to be, like, administering some sort of, like, iPad Khan Academy education system thing. And it's going to suck. And But, the, but they're going to point to, like, how much money it's saving. And they're going to point to, like, well, now these kids get to learn from Steven Pinker directly through an iPad, you know, or some shit like that. So we haven't had a chance to talk about this on the show yet, but we... Police brutality is one of our beats. And this case of Ahmad Arbery, who was murdered in cold blood in Georgia, um, there's been a recent development of it today. So it's a good time to finally delve into it. There's just been so much going on with COVID. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the effects of that. But this is a story that definitely deserves to be at the forefront of everybody's mind. So Ahmad Arbery, uh, a young man who was as far as anybody knows, jogging. Um, the high crime of jogging. The high, yeah, exactly. Being yeah. black while jogging. Um, who was mercilessly gunned down by two white men. Um, Vigilantes, yeah. Yeah. Gregory and Travis McMichael, a father and son. Um, Gregory McMichael was a former police officer, and um, Ar- Arbery was suspected of entering a house that was under construction, um, didn't do any, no property damage, didn't seem to be doing anything wrong at the site. In fact, some people think he may have been there to get a drink of water based on some surveillance, uh, footage, footage of the site that it looks cause there was two like water taps at the site and it looks like he filled up a jug of water there and then left. Um, but in any event, it, under the pretense of trying to catch him for doing something illegal, they confronted him, and that confrontation ended with him being shot three times with a shotgun, um, twice in the chest, which is how he died. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, and the video is absolutely gruesome. Uh, it's, you know, I don't, I don't watch it if you, it's, it's always hard with instances like this, because it's like, you know, so you have to be a witness to the injustice, but um, don't go like tracking it down if you think it's something that'll be uh, like traumatic for you to watch. But it is it is absolutely horrifying the way that they just straight up murdered him in cold blood on a street in the middle of the day. It's a lynching. Yeah. It's a lynching. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then they just went home. Right. Like somebody yeah. captured this video um, like in a car behind the truck that was sort of patrolling and then harassing and then murdering. Amud, um, and th- like without that video, nobody would know about this at all. So we have no real uh, understanding of like how prevalent this is, except for the fact that occasionally it gets caught right on video. You know, yeah, like somebody and, just and, happens to be there. Yeah, and the, and these two, uh, the, the McMichaels, uh, this father and son duo, like did not get 
arrested immediately. It took a, a lot of outrage. He was shot on February 23rd, yeah. and they weren't even arrested until May 7th. And it was only because this video started circulating finally, and there was, you know, enough public out- outrage that the police decided to do something about it. But yeah, months these people went free after just straight up murdering an innocent civilian. And and so what? why we're talking about it now is that there is um, new evidence that uh, the police directed that homeowner, um, English, right? Larry English. Larry English. Uh, um, direct, the police directed him to call on the McMichaels if they were, he was having a problem with the property. So the, this, uh, which he never did, right? The, the homeowner is very adamant that, that um, the, you know, the owner of this construction site, that he never uh, asked anyone to do anything. But um, the the police were basically saying, like, go find these vigilantes to uh, deal with any problems on your property. It's uh, what um, the fuck? Yeah. Well, so, well I mean, so, like, it's it, it, it makes it. I mean, it's obvious that like they're like, well, he's one of us, right? He's he's a retired police detective, and so it's like, so he's obviously one of the good guys, and you can just go ask him anything. Uh, and uh, and of course that's true, right? Because I we could very easily imagine the police like active police doing the exact same thing, right? Where they, you know, they hear that someone has been on the construction site. They see a black guy running and, uh, and, and just immediately shoot him. Like that's not out of the realm of possibility for active duty police officers, let alone retired ones. It's, it's, it's fucking wild. You know, this, this means that the likely method by which these two perpetrators found out about this and, you know, got the gumption together to put together an armed patrol to run out and try and find this man and murder him was from the police probably contacting them. And so, like, it, it, I, I wonder how much of this is completely premeditated. Like, the police were like, you know what? We haven't, we haven't just killed some guy for no reason for a while and like it looked like egg on our face if we did it you know with like a guy that was like in uniform but i know a guy i know a guy so let me let me let me reach out the only way that i can make sense of any of this is that they are just straight up wanting to hunt human beings uh specifically black human beings like how else do you explain them just gunning down a person jogging like you're just you're just on a hunt that's it yeah, and the video is super disturbing, like, you know, um, and I ended up watching it, and it's horrifying. But Ahmad, uh, you know, apparently was uh, threatened with a shotgun because he ended up, like, rushing the guy with the shotgun uh, in a, you know, an attempt to not be murdered um, and, like, try and take the gun away from uh, the man. And that's when he got shot, like, point blank, twice. Um, and, like, just the Three terror times, of that. Oh, three. Yeah, it's just the just the terror of that. Thinking about that, like you know, I'm <laughs> I'm not a badass. I'm sort of chicken shit. If somebody had a fucking shotgun and I was on a run. I would not fucking have the balls to go up and try and defend myself against that person. So, like, I can only imagine that this man had to be essentially cornered, you know, like and thought he had to uh, th- that thought that this was the best chance of survival. And the other guy was like in the bed of the truck. Like, this was literally a hunting expedition, you know? Like, like this is fucked up shit, you know? Like, this is this is America. This is the same country that had 200 years plus of chattel slavery. This is the same country that completely systemically ignores and forgets and m- misinterprets its own history. 
This is a country with deep psychological illness, um, you know, like baked into into our, our society, into our history. And it, it's just fucked up. And, I, you know, I don't know what the right response is, but it was good to see the Black Panthers out, you know, in an armed patrol of the neighborhood yeah. showing that, you know, they got they got each other's back, I guess. Yeah, it's been pretty incredible to see art like armed um, either Black Panther or Black Panther style organizations uh, in their response. There, there was another case of a I can't remember. It, I want to say it was Michigan, but I don't remember the state of a um, state lawmaker, a black woman who had been was it Michigan? Yeah. Um, who had been uh, threatened. I don't know how it, it, I think it was more of an implicit threat, but by these armed why don't we just go ahead and call them white supremacists? Because I'm sorry if you show up in a state building demanding to be to reopen with a bunch of fucking assault. I shouldn't say assault rifles. I know that uh, is a miss, miss, uh, an abuse of that term. But, you know, a bunch of scary fucking guns. How about that? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, they showed up to uh, escort her to her office, essentially, in, in the wake of that threat. And, like, I saw a TikTok the other day that was like... Uh, a, a black guy saying like we want to carry you know what we should we should uh exercise our right to bear arms and then it's a, a white guy saying okay we want gun control now please um <laughs> just, ronald reagan the, yeah the history of gun control exactly, california yeah. ronald reagan instantly yep. implementing uh gun control laws because black panthers uh like showed up in sacramento open carry yeah, yeah. um and you know i don't generally tend to think of like more people arming themselves is like the answer to our social ills but fuck what else do you do at this point black people are being lynched in the fucking in broad daylight in the middle of the street you know minding their own business not doing anything wrong so i don't like i it, we the state is entirely unwilling to protect its citizens what else do you do yeah and let's also point out that like if everybody who is uh you know storming the uh, capitol buildings in the last couple of weeks uh, armed to the teeth uh, if those were black people, uh, you know, demanding, I don't know, like health, some type of uh, <laughs> yeah, ba- yeah, basic uh, humanity recognized by the government or like anything else. Like, uh, yeah, they um, they wouldn't have just let them in. They wouldn't have just been there like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, come on. And also, like, imagine having a fucking high powered rifle. And being like, oh, yeah, I'm such, you know, I'm such a badass. Like, I, I, I can go toe to toe with the United States government. Like, they ain't, they ain't got shit on us. We're, we're a well-organized militia. And then using all that firepower and threat of, like, you know, lethal violence and, you know, total, like, chaos in our society to demand to go back to work for your boss. And it's not even really like they want to go back to work. It's that they want all the service providers that would give them stuff to go do to go serve them. I believe that there are quite a few people that are motivated like that, that they, uh, that they are themselves fairly comfortable and they probably don't have a lot of, um, financial problems and are in, and instead like just desperately need someone to, uh, um, feed them, uh, uh, baby back ribs at Chili's. But then the, I, I, but I do also think that there is a, um, substantial number of people who, you know, like really just don't, like, I mean, like, you just don't believe that the government is even capable in any way of keeping you safe, right? That's just, like, beyond the pale. So instead, you just demand to, to like, let you, like, 
save yourself, right? It's like, just like get out of, you know, like government get out of the way. You know, I'm not really saying that, but you know, like that, that's what the, uh, I think a lot of people think, right? Is that like, you know, like I, the only way to survive is to do it yourself, that there is no social contract. So clearly like all, all that needs to be done is like, let me get back to work. And uh, yeah, I might die doing it, but I haven't known anything else other than like risking my life for like bare necessities and like, you know, finding cheap shit at Walmart. Like that's the American way. And it's like these people don't really even want to just like go back to running their ski dealerships or whatever. They want the social debate to fall in their favor or on their side that they believe in through their uh, coercion, through their their show of potentially lethal revolutionary force. And that these people could already just open up their hair salons or their skidoo dealerships or whatever the fuck they want and probably not even get in trouble. Like, did you guys see at all uh, what was going on with Elon Musk uh, in uh, California? No. So yeah, Elon Musk defies coronavirus order and asks to be arrested. Uh, so Tesla is reopening its California car factory against Alameda County's wishes. And I believe that uh, Elon Musk is actually suing Alameda County uh, for um, saying it is illegal to open uh, up businesses, uh, including the, uh, the Tesla uh, super factory that they have there. Uh, and so uh, Elon Musk took to Twitter and basically uh, said, you know, um, we're, we're opening up. If anybody's to be arrested, please let it only be me. And uh, somebody commented on it, uh, which I thought was hilarious, uh, saying that Elon Musk thinks he's Rosa Parks. And he's actually just <laughs> Karen. <laughs> you know, when my parents' emerald mine was not doing well, you know, I could get the government to arrest the people that weren't working. But now the government wants to arrest me. It's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> oh man did you guys see him uh jump on joe rogan uh and talk about his uh the batshit naming of his child and how uh the coronavirus isn't like a real thing uh yeah it's crazy uh so you know we've got an exciting guest i want to tease uh an author of a book that hopefully we'll be able to discuss uh the book next week um uh, who goes into a bunch of hypothetical scenarios, including uh, the day a tech billionaire takes over the world. And it seems like there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Elon Musk is probably going to be that tech billionaire that's going to try and make a, uh, a global, uh, you know, domination uh, move. I mean, if, if anyone is has as like an intuitive or seemingly intuitive like understanding of the attention economy and Twitter specifically, right? It's like Donald Trump and Elon Musk, like the two of them just like get it. Like, I think I, like as rank posters. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be too kayfabe about it, but like when they made that, that ridiculous um, name for their kid that um, I don't even, I'm not even going to begin to pronounce. It's Kyle. it is. It's Kai, and then uh, the uh, the A E thing. Yeah, yeah, and then um, Alpha Numeric Thirteen, I think, which yeah. is L. It's the the correct pronunciation of it is Kyle. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh shit! Man. Yeah, I can't believe you guys I haven't seen that. No, it was like no, a huge no thing idea. on Twitter. No. That yeah, it's no, no. Kyle is how you I, pronounce it. I just listened to the uh, the the um, the Joe Rogan app, or at least parts of it, the parts that I could stomach. Okay, well, <laughs> but, I turned it the, off. The thing I was going to say is that you know that um, I don't want to be too kayfabe about it, but when uh, um, Grimes 
uh, uh, misremembered the name of the of the fighter jet or something, and like Elon Musk, uh, uh, a spy man, plane. Yeah, man, yeah, the mansplained the spy plane uh, <laughs> uh, to to her like while she was like still recovering from birth. I think that was all staged. Like, I think that's just like a perfect way to like, like oh Elon Musk like mansplained her to his his you know his his uh, uh baby's mama or something. <laughs> I, I I think like all of that is just to get to get more attention it's to get us talking about it right they're just like so excellent at getting um attention uh both negative and positive that um you you just can't imagine a world where they're not in it talk and we're talking about it so like I, you know I, I i wouldn't be surprised if musk ended up well you know what is he he's not an, a natural born american citizen right so he can't no no he's just how, yeah, yeah he's yeah, not he's even a south citizen africa. so he can't yeah, south africa but uh, no, no, he, at least he, he won't be present. But you know, like maybe we can, like you know, completely rewrite the constitution for, uh, yeah, to to let um, you know, some uh immigrants uh to run for public office. Well, see, that's the thing is, he won't even run. Like, if if there's a tech billionaire ah, okay. that's going to try and take over the world, they're not going to put themselves into a system of uh, you know, electoral um uh accountability like that's not right, gonna happen right <laughs> like, yeah, these, these people are like beyond that they're, they're the, the point where they run the government with what we call soft power and uh yeah, elon mean, musk this, is you know a soft boy in this <laughs> disrupt democracy in in in, in high capitalism if, if you want to wield power going into elected office is like probably the worst way to do it it's much more yeah. you're gonna have a much more effective wielding of power as a you know, private corporate entity. Um, I think he'd, he, to be king of the world, uh, trying to become president of the United States would be uh, a very inefficient way to go about doing that. Oh, yeah. Speaking of uh, reopening in California, um, Atwater, California has declared itself to be a sanctuary city for all businesses. And um, they've passed a city <laughs> ordinance that uh, allows... All businesses to open safely, uh, according to the mayor, um, this is uh, from Atwater Mayor Paul Crichton, quote, this is America. You have the choice. It's time for the government to stop dictating another month, another three months, six months. When is it going to end? When everyone is bankrupt? Um, so, yeah, they have declared themselves a sanctuary city for all businesses, as well as nonprofits like churches, of course. And it's just like hilarious to see we how often do we see this happen? The right wing co-opting the language of the left in order to like defend, you know, all of us dying on the altar of capital. It's literally a death cult at this point. Like we've always kind of like cracked that joke that so much of um, like this worship of, of capital is a death cult. But like now. Now it is. It's it just literally is yeah. a death cult. Yeah. It's self-aware as such. And they're like, you, you know. Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've come it, to it, shop at you again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, the uh, again, you know, right? I mean, like the only way that that I, I think can make sense to anyone that isn't already like really black pilled is the idea that like yeah, there is no possible way for you to sustain life and like actually reproduce society in every sort of every sort of sense without um constant business activity right we can't imagine it's capitalist realism right you can't imagine anything else 
And so it, to to say that we have to reopen uh, the economy, whatever the fuck that is, right? You know, we have to reopen every single business so that we can go buy uh, um, salad shooters at Walmart. Like that, that is what keeps everyone alive. Like we've built this ridiculous system where if everyone isn't constantly buying shit that they don't need, we die. There's no, I don't know. There's no joke at the end of that. It's just fucked no, up. no. The, the the joke is is the branding, you know, the TNAC, the um, or Tina. The, there is no alternative, you know, yeah. like that that was uh, mocked uh, severely at the time that Margaret Thatcher uh, said it. But now it's uh, common we made sense. It true, yeah, we made it. True. Yeah, no, it, we we've and we've also done what we can to like, you know, oh, oh, people. So I've been thinking a lot about the Trump administration and, and Biden and whether or not, you know, like there's a moral imperative to replace Trump with Biden or, or what have you. And I, I'm coming around to it, even though I really hate Biden. Um, and one of the reasons I'm coming around to it is the idea that, like, the right wing constituted and described, you know, under Trump is so about, you know, keeping government small enough to drown in a bathtub. Like there's some, you know, fantasy of uh, infanticide that's built into that. But uh, the, 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 the idea that the, the, the pre the pre uh, or it's, it is really fucked up. Right. That, that 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 theory or that metaphor like presupposes that someone is constantly thinking about how to kill a small baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's more there, there's more than one way to skin a baby, you know. Like, uh, and l- let me explain the ways. Uh, but the idea that you have a government staffed, you know, at the federal level, the highest orders of you know our government, with the explicit intent of undermining their own government administrative offices, not staffing it properly, not having diplomats, not having uh, FEMA response systems, not having stockpiles of necessary materials to deal with, I don't know, a phenomena like a pandemic or like whatever, that this is not only like a sort of like fantasy of the right, this is actual policy, this is actual strategy, and this is what they've actually done. And we have, uh, you know, in the the last several, you know, decades, uh, but especially in the last, you know, uh, five years or so, um, had a government which seemingly is is dead set on undermining its ability to actually help people in the country that you know it lords over, and. That's fucked up and scary. Like, really, it is. It is. And I'd like to believe that a uh, Biden presidency would restore, I don't know, some type of authentic uh, desire to actually serve the public needs on any level. But, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if, it, if it's there because, uh, you know, the, the coordination between the right and the left on uh, a federal level, as far as politics goes, seems to be uh, immense. And the bipartisan consensus on bailing out corporate interests while essentially saying fuck you to, like, the vast majority of, like, working people um, seems to be demonstrated over and over. Like, you know, even into this moment of, you know, widespread panic and uh, and anxiety and, um, you know, crisis. Yeah, quite quite literally, there's no value. No one is valuing human life, right? Like, in the calculus of, like, what to do, what to do next no one has put uh, an all-important price tag, right? Like a, a price signal on human life. It's it's yeah. very, very weird. Uh, speaking of, there's an incredibly relevant uh, Vanity Fair article titled, People Will Die. People Do Die. 
Wall Street has had enough of the lockdown. And there's this really great quote from a Wall Street banker. Um, Yeah, you should do a dramatic reading of it. Okay. Saving lives versus saving jobs is the wrong debate. Isn't there a middle ground? How many lives are you willing to spend to bring the economy back to maintain people's standard of living? How many lives are we willing to risk? How do you put a price on life? Many lives were lost preserving American democracy in the fight against Nazi Germany. There was no moral high ground then. What? There wasn't? What? (laughs) There was no moral high ground in the fight between, like, the Allied powers and Nazi Germany? It was just bodies and spaces, like, smacking into each other and bullets and stuff. Like, there's no morality involved in World War II. (laughs) So then he goes on to say, uh, so, yeah, there was no moral high ground then. And now they are remembered as the greatest generation. He wonders, how do you compromise between the pragmatic and the moral? There are shades of gray. So this is what um, Wall Street bankers think about you uh, losing your life uh, so that you can just be ground among the gears of American, um, like, finance, basically. I'm glad we, we're, we're, we're entering the phase of, uh, you know, uh, Buddhist uh, recognition that we all are just the, you know, the, the universe. And that uh, w- when we cease to be, we are not really ceasing to be. We, we, we perpetuate just in different forms. Yeah, okay. this is the weirdest spiritual revolution that uh, is in human history. Just realizing that we should just die for the profit of the richest members of our society. Just everyone melt into the universal solvent of money. <laughs> but uh um uh yeah i yeah like really just like break I, we could spend an hour like an episode all of its own just breaking down this metaphor is it it's so it it go it, it's just there, there's so many levels to it right he's like on the one hand like obviously there is uh quite obviously a moral high ground in the fight between nazis and um, and everybody else literally everybody else right wait and, are you what do you what do you mean i mean yeah the nazis were killing people but the only way we were able to stop them was by killing people i don't know <laughs> see it seems you say you seems like there's killing some... people and yet you, you want kill to people. kill people <laughs> yeah. curious curious right, the, but I, on top of that you know like there's there's some really interesting and evil work being done in anthropomorphizing the virus right of like turning the virus into like a human enemy yeah is that one it means that you could there is there was a possibility that you could negotiate with this enemy and you chose not to right it means that 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 it has a motive of some kind that oh yeah that you can you know but but it's but it doesn't it's It's stored in the rna it's stored in the rna but it doesn't it's just a fucking virus and like there are like I'm the last person to make an argument about like unthinking uh, uh, deference to authority of experts, but like if 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 you have a virus as the enemy, then there's like a few things you can do, and you have to do that at all costs. Whereas in st- you know in the case of like a like a war, right, you can do all sorts of things to mobilize the nation to to win a war but with a virus you just need to like fucking stay away from each other you know like it's not (laughs) and and you do everything possible to make that uh um possible right you you do everything in your power to let people live their lives safely apart from each other until the threat subsides 
And I don't know, man. Else, anything else is just muddying the waters and convincing people that they have to go throw their bodies on the gears of capitalism in order to keep the like percentage rate of return on so, on the stock of Darden Foods of like you know, uh, you know like high enough for someone to make money. I saw a tweet yeah. earlier that was like, um, "What if if you would have asked yourselves." a few months ago like what would be the death toll that would be required for a massive paradigm shift in the way that we think about like markets and the economy uh apparently the answer is a whole lot more than eighty nine thousand. <laughs> yeah it, it's going to take more than nine eleven every day to get us to think even a little bit about different ways we could organize the system of production and distribution i don't think there's even a number i don't think there is a number i think that if seven million people were going to die tomorrow would that be worth an economic downturn? These Cretans would say, yes, however many, however many is necessary. Because because how many more would die in an economic downturn? Right. You know, right. like that's always the logic they can fall back on. It's like, well, you can't really quantify. And, and part of that is the problem. It's hard to quantify the suffering induced by um, like corporate interest. And you can't like you can't put a number on the on how many people suffer and die horrible deaths because of the interest of like oligarchs and, you know, um, our corporate masters. And so it's a convenient argument to say, okay, well, well, what suffering is worse? I mean, yeah, people are dying of coronavirus. People die of things all the time, but you know, how, how, what are the, what are the drawbacks of, of a, a global economic, um, you know, depression? Like it, it's, it's, uh, the math, you know, we're trying to count too much, essentially. And that's why I'm even a little bit skeptical of using the numbers of COVID, a 9-11 a day, 89, you know, 100,000 by June. Like, the numbers are immaterial to the argument. The argument is that there are very clear, um, fairly easy measures that we can take right now to reduce humans. And it's not even just how many people die. It's the suffering that this disease yeah. inflicts on yeah. people. And the fact that we can, even if we can end spread, hunger in America right now, like that. But it's also like with COVID, I mean, it's 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 a horrible death. And people who are surviving are looking at a lifetime of respiratory illness, respiratory illness. And I can tell you this as a lifelong smoker is a horrible way to live. Like, you know, COPD, emphysema, lung cancer, like you're constantly drowning on the fluid produced in your lungs. This is, you know, so, so it's like the 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 trying to match suffering for suffering and death rate to death rate is um is a fool's errand when it comes to this kind of uh, this kind of uh, crisis that we're facing. And we've built a system that where it is so difficult to see that many people dying, right? Like we hide both death and the dying and like the CCP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, like, you know, we, we warehouse old people into old folks homes. Uh, hospitals are uh, by design, you know, like very antiseptic places that hide a lot of stuff usually for good reasons but it also just means that like you can walk like you can walk outside your house right now walk around and that you know that abstract number doesn't have a face or like anything to it right like it's just like i've heard people die but like no one that i know died you right and so it's just like out there and also the deaths are like disproportional to poor people and they're not evenly distributed uh, because we live in a country where healthcare and even your baseline health is radically different depending on your zip code. And, and we've been culturally primed by the war on terror to, uh, you know, as, as you were saying earlier, to anthropomorphize a basic 
you know, conceptual fear or threat as like an enemy with a plan that can be defeated. You know, we're going to bomb terror till terror stops existing. And then we're going to, you know, allow terror to meet us on the USS, you know, lollipop and, you know, surrender uh, ceremoniously its sword. It's going to be and, a big banner. Uh, you know, I have to yeah, say, exactly. that's, it, you made that joke in one of our very first episodes. And I think to this day, it remains one of my favorite jokes you've ever made on the pod is the idea <laughs> of getting terror to like Sorry. relinquish, surrender on a, on a ship and relinquish its sword. Um, yeah, eventually it will. You know, we just need someday. to keep bombing it. And yeah, now COVID like, will know, too. We just need yeah, to exactly. uh, make the make the Ignore line it. go burr. <laughs> All right, you guys want to do a wildflower? Yes, please. I'm, I'm ready for a wildflower. <laughs> I think we've sub- yeah. I feel like uh, our our dear listener, who we love, uh, we've subjected you to some serious darkness. Yeah. All right, so here's our wildflower for today, and it's so cute. I, I unilaterally chose it. I didn't even consult with the boys because uh, I needed this one to be the one we talk about. Though, and, though I did find it. You did find it. That's true. An endangered pygmy hippo was born at the San Diego Zoo, the first in over 30 years. This is. I have to see this. I'm also Let me pull uni- up the article. <laughs> yeah, you've got to pull it up, dude. I'm also unilaterally oh deciding God. that this is our outlet. This is our episode art. Um, <laughs> yep. Yep. So, pygmy hippos are an endangered species, but in April, one was born at the San Diego Zoo. It's the zoo's first successful pygmy hippo birth in more than 30 years. Mabel, a four-year-old pygmy hippopotamus at the San Diego Zoo, gave, San Diego Zoo gave birth to her first calf last month. Um, the calf hasn't been named, but the zoo said it stood, walked, and followed its mother around within just a few hours of its birth. That is so cute. Look at this thing. So for those of you who uh, um, obviously can't see the, uh, the, the pygmy, the baby pygmy hippo, um, it looks like a wet, hairless guinea pig. And it's adorable. <laughs> it's much more adorable than that sounds. Well, it'll be the album art, so you should be able to see, you know, depending on what uh, platform you're listening on. Method, yeah. Um, but it is so... The baby now weighs 25 pounds, up from the wee 12 pounds he weighed at birth. Oh, my wow. God. It's like human-sized. That's a big human. Ba- well, you know, as far as babies go. Yeah. There yeah. have been 12-pound babies. Jesus Christ! I think I was that like eleven. I, what? I know. I was like eleven pounds. My brother was even. I was heavier. nine, my and mom, I was considered huge. Yeah, we we were big babies. My fam. My mom ended up uh, having a C-section for her first birth because my uh, my oldest brother was fucking huge. <laughs> I was seven pounds eleven ounces. Oh, very lucky. Just so folks know, at birth, the average baby weighs seven and a half pounds. The range of normal is between 5.8 and 10 pounds. Uh, Chris, you were, a fucking, you were a fucking monster baby. Yeah. I'm surprised Big your mother baby is forgiving boy. you. I... <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. I'm, try, I'm trying to remember that song. It's like, I'm a buff baby that can and dance like, like a man. man. Oh man! Remember she's when a I had nice that lady and she's shaking her yams. <laughs> Remember when I had that song stuck in my head yeah. for like a month? So yeah, a little little bright spot. Um, I think that'll wrap it up for us this week. Uh, Reach out to the pick me hippo in your life, whatever that may be. Yeah, yeah. Find yeah. your own pygmy hippo. And Cher- cherish it. Hold it close. 
Unless it's, it looks pretty slimy. I don't know yeah. if I'd really want to hold it close. Well, yeah, actually, I mean, don't hold a hippo close to you. They're, they're extremely dangerous animals. That's true. I don't know yeah. if a yeah. pygmy hippo is dangerous, though. Well, not at 25 <laughs> pounds. I could take a pygmy hippo that's 25 pounds. What's the mass size of a pygmy hippo? Uh, 275 kilograms, oh. so 606 pounds. Holy sh... That's a pygmy? <laughs> yeah, that's a pygmy. Yeah, no, a pygmy, uh, pygmy hippo can still fuck you up. I mean, hi- hi- hippos um, are the most deadly animal yeah. in the world. In the, uh, all, 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 the, the hippo. Well, <laughs> Clearly. Let's see. What's a full-size uh, regular hippo? Well, oh, is... shit. 3,000 pounds. Oh, my God. Damn. Man. So five, it's a fifth the size of a standard hippo. Jesus. Wow. Yeah, so hippos can bite you in half. That's one of the uh, surprising facts of a hippo. I think it might be the only animal that can straight up just, I don't know, I guess there's a lot of sea animals. Some some uh, megalodons, some uh, yeah, maybe a shark could great do whites. Yeah, a shark could probably bite you in half. As far as land animals go, yeah, hippos are uh, fearsome, and they're incredibly aggressive. That's the other thing, is that uh, they, they look like they just straight chill, uh, but... They got big ass tusks and they are fast and <laughs> scary as fuck. Yeah. All right. So um, you're about to hear chapter 14 of Kropotkin. This is kind of an interesting Woo-hoo! one. It's very short, but um, it's essentially a criticism of the immortal science and political economy generally and the paradigm of, or not, uh, approach to understanding. Um, labor from the production from beginning from production and labor value and kropotkin says instead uh much like marx inverted hegel's dialectic kropotkin says we need to invert the labor value uh notion and begin with consumption what do we need and then let production grow naturally out of that calculus Mm, so it's a pretty good mm. it's it's pretty short um i hope you guys enjoy it um we're nearing the end of Kropotkin, finally. God, if you have um, something you'd like us to do for a future reading series, I would kind of like to keep... I like the idea of it. I don't so, know. Something know. shorter. Something shorter. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I haven't read it yet, but I really want to listen to an audiobook of uh, Lenin's uh, State and Revolution. Yeah, get at us. Let us know what you want. It needs to be out of copyright. Um, go to Gutenberg Library, Gutenberg Project to find lots and lots of great political theory that's out of copyright. If you see anything there that catches your eye, shoot us an email and let us know if you'd like to hear it. And I don't know. Also, just let us know if the reading series is even something you're interested in continuing. Um, I like doing it. It's good. Doesn't take me a super long time to produce, you know, short chapters. But uh, yeah, let us know. And um, I guess otherwise, you can find us on Twitter. Iron Reads Pod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweedspod. You can shoot us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. Hey, that was pretty good, you guys. <laughs> yeah, we're getting better. Um, Practice. Makes perfect. Yeah. And um, if you'd like some bonus content and you have a dollar or more to spare a month, hit us up on patreon.com slash ironweeds. We really appreciate your support. Um, It's kind of, uh, I'm having to back off the podcast a little bit because I uh, have, you know, I'm finishing a book series and I need some more paying gigs. So uh, also, if you know anybody who, if you or someone you love has written a book and would like to turn it into an audio format, um, hit me up. 
I don't know, my rates yeah. are very reasonable. And Best narrator yeah. in the business. I absolutely. Uh, okay, so thanks so much, you guys. We love you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Chapter 14 Consumption and Production. Looking at society and its political organization from a different standpoint than that of authoritarian schools, for we start from a free individual to reach a free society instead of beginning by the state to come down to the individual. We follow the same method in economic questions. We study the needs of individuals and the means by which they satisfy them before discussing production, exchange, taxation, government, etc. To begin with, the difference may appear trifling, but in reality it upsets official political economy. If you open the works of any economist, you will find that he begins with production, the analysis of means employed nowadays for the creation of wealth, division of labor, manufacture, machinery, accumulation of capital. From Adam Smith to Marx, all have proceeded along these lines. Only in the latter parts of their books do they treat of consumption, that is to say, of the means necessary to satisfy the needs of individuals. And moreover, they confine themselves to explaining how riches are divided among those who vie with one another for their possession. Perhaps you will say this is logical. Before satisfying needs, you must create the wherewithal to satisfy them. But before producing anything, must you not feel the need of it? Is it not necessity that first drove man to hunt, to raise cattle, to cultivate land, to make implements, and later on to invent machinery? Is it not the study of needs that should govern production? It would therefore be quite as logical to begin by considering needs and afterwards to discuss the means of production in order to satisfy these needs. This is precisely what we mean to do. But as soon as we look at it from this point of view, political economy entirely changes its aspect. It ceases to be a simple description of facts and becomes a science. We can define it as the study of the needs of humanity and the means of satisfying them with the least possible waste of human energy. Its true name should be physiology of society. It constitutes a parallel science to the physiology of plants and animals, which also is the study of the needs of plants and animals and the most advantageous ways of satisfying them. In the series of social sciences, the economy of human societies takes the place, occupied in the series of biological sciences by the physiology of organic bodies. We say, here are human beings, united in a society. All feel the need of living in healthy houses. The savage's hut no longer satisfies them. They require a more or less comfortable, solid shelter. The question is, then, whether man's capacity for production being given, every man can have a house of his own. And what is hindering him from having it? And we are soon convinced that every family in Europe could perfectly well have a comfortable house, such as are built in England, in Belgium, or in Pullman City, or else an equivalent set of rooms. A certain number of days' work would suffice to build a pretty little airy house, well fitted up and lighted by gas. But nine-tenths of Europeans have never possessed a healthy house, because at all times common people have had to work day after day to satisfy the needs of their rulers, and have never had the necessary leisure or money to build, or to have built, the home of their dreams. And they can have no houses, and will inhabit hovels as long as present conditions remain unchanged. As you see, we proceed contrary to economists, who immortalize the so-called laws of production, and reckoning up the number of houses built every year, 
demonstrate by statistics that the new-built houses not sufficing to meet all demands, nine-tenths of Europeans must live in hovels. Let us pass on to food. After having enumerated the benefits accruing from the division of labor, economists tell us the division of labor requires that some men should work at agriculture and others at manufacture. Farmers producing so much, factories so much, exchange being carried on in such a way, they analyze the sale, the profit, the net gain or the surplus value, the wages, the taxes, banking, and so on. But after having followed them so far, we are none the wiser. And if we ask them, how is it that millions of human beings are in want of bread when every family could grow sufficient wheat to feed 10, 20, and even 100 people annually, they answer us by droning the same anthem. Division of labor, wages, surplus value, capital, etc. Arriving at the same conclusion, that production is insufficient to satisfy all needs. A conclusion which, if true, does not answer the question, can or cannot man by his labor produce the bread he needs? And if he cannot, what is hindering him? Here are 350 million Europeans. They need so much bread, so much meat, wine, milk, eggs, and butter every year. They need so many houses, so much clothing. This is the minimum of their needs. Can they produce all this? And if they can, will there then be left sufficient leisure for art, science, and amusement? In a word, for everything that is not comprised in the category of absolute necessities. If the answer is in the affirmative, what hinders them going ahead? What must they do to remove obstacles? Is time needed? Let them take it. But let us not lose sight of the aim of production, the satisfaction of needs. If the most imperious needs of man remain unsatisfied, what must he do to increase the productivity of his work? And is there no other cause? Might it not be that production, having lost sight of the needs of man, has strayed in an absolutely wrong direction, and that its organization is at fault? And as we can prove that such is the case, let us see how to reorganize production so as to really satisfy all needs. This seems to us the only right way of facing things, the only way that would allow of political economy becoming a science, a science of social physiology. It is evident that when this science will treat of production, as it is at present carried on by civilized nations, by Hindu communes, or by savages, it will hardly state facts otherwise than the economists state them now that is to say, as a simple descriptive chapter, analogous to descriptive chapters of zoology and botany. But if this chapter were written to throw light on the economy of energy necessary to satisfy human needs, the chapter would gain in precision as well as in descriptive value. It would clearly prove the frightful waste of human energy under the present system, and would admit, as we do, that as long as this system exists, the needs of humanity will never be satisfied. The point of view, we see, would be entirely changed. Behind the loom that weaves so many yards of cloth, behind the steel plate perforator, and behind the safe in which dividends are hoarded, we should see man, the artisan of production, more often than not excluded from the feast he has prepared for others. We should also understand that the standpoint being wrong so-called laws of value and exchange are but a very false explanation of events as they happen nowadays, and that things will come to pass very differently when production is organized in such a manner as to meet all needs of society.
There is not a single principle of political economy that does not change its aspect if you look at it from our point of view. Take, for instance, overproduction, a word which every day re-echoes in our ears. Is there a single economist, academic, or candidate for academic honors who has not supported arguments proving that economic crises are due to overproduction? That at a given moment more cotton, more cloth, more watches are produced than are needed? Have not men accused of rapacity the capitalists who are obstinately bent on producing more than can possibly be consumed? But on careful examination, all these reasonings prove unsound. In fact, is there a commodity among those in universal use which is produced in greater quantity than need be? Examine one by one all commodities sent out by countries exporting on a large scale, and you will see that nearly all are produced in insufficient quantities for the inhabitants of the countries exporting them. It is not a surplus of wheat that the Russian peasant sends to Europe. The most plentiful harvests of wheat and rye in European Russia only yield enough for the population. And as a rule, the peasant deprives himself of what he actually needs when he sells his wheat or rye to pay rent and taxes. It is not a surplus of coal that England sends to the four corners of the globe, because only three-quarters of a ton per head of population annually remain for home domestic consumption, and millions of Englishmen are deprived of fire in the winter or have only just enough to boil a few vegetables. In fact, setting aside useless luxuries, there is in England, which now exports more than any other country, but a single commodity in universal use, cottons, whose production is sufficiently great to perhaps exceed the needs of the community. Yet, when we look upon the rags that pass for wearing apparel worn by over a third of the inhabitants of the United Kingdom, we are led to ask ourselves whether the cottons exported would not, within a trifle, suit the real needs of the population. As a rule, it is not surplus that is exported, though it may have been so originally. The fable of the barefooted shoemaker is as true of nations as it was formerly of artisans. We export the necessary commodities, and we do so because the workmen cannot buy with their wages what they have produced and pay besides the rent and interest to the capitalist and the banker. Not only does the ever-growing need of comfort remain unsatisfied, but strict necessaries are often wanting. Surplus production does, therefore, not exist, at least not in the sense which is given to it by the theorists of political economy. Taking another point, all economists tell us that there is a well-proved law. Man produces more than he consumes. After he has lived on the proceeds of his toil, there remains a surplus. Thus, a family of cultivators produces enough to feed several families, and so forth. For us, this oft-repeated sentence has no sense. If it meant that each generation leaves something to future generations, it would be true. Thus, for example, a farmer plants a tree that will live maybe for 30, 40, or 100 years, and whose fruits will still be gathered by the farmer's grandchildren. Or he clears a few acres of virgin soil, and we say that the heritage of future generations has been increased by that much. Roads, bridges, canals, his house and his furniture are so much wealth bequeathed to succeeding generations. But this is not what is meant. We are told that the cultivator produces more than he need consume. Rather, should they say that the state, having always taken from him a large share of his produce for taxes, 
the priest for tithe, and the landlord for rent, a whole class of men has been created, who formerly consumed what they produced, save what was set aside for unforeseen accidents, or expenses incurred in afforestation, roads, etc., but who today are compelled to live very poorly, from hand to mouth, the remainder having been taken from them by the state, the landlord, the priest, and the usurer. Let us also observe that if the needs of the individual are our starting point, we cannot fail to reach communism, an organization which enables us to satisfy all needs in the most thorough and economical way. While if we start from our present method of production and aim at gain and surplus value without taking into account if production corresponds to the satisfaction of needs, we necessarily arrive at capitalism, or at most collectivism both being but diverse forms of our wages system. In fact, when we consider the needs of the individual and of society, and the means which man has resorted to in order to satisfy them during his varied phases of development, we are convinced of the necessity of systematizing our efforts, instead of producing haphazard as we do nowadays. It grows evidence that the appropriation by a few of all riches not consumed and transmitted from one generation to another is not in the general interest. We can state as a fact that owing to these methods the needs of three-quarters of society are not satisfied, and that the present waste of human strength is the more useless and the more criminal. We discover, moreover, that the most advantageous use of all commodities would be, for each of them, to go first for satisfying those needs which are the most pressing, that, in other words, The so-called value in use of a commodity does not depend on a simple whim, as has often been affirmed, but on the satisfaction it brings to real needs. Communism, that is to say, an organization which would correspond to a view of consumption, production, and exchange, taken as a whole, therefore becomes the logical consequence of the comprehension of things, the only one, in our opinion, that is really scientific. A society that will satisfy the needs of all and which will know how to organize production will also have to make a clean sweep of several prejudices concerning industry, and first of all of the theory often preached by economists, the division of labor theory, which we are going to discuss in the next chapter.